Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 6, Episode 2 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. Last week, we talked about uh, Julie Daubigny, a uh, 17th century French bisexual sword-fighting, gender-bending opera singer. <laughs> Who are we talking about this week, Hugh? Well, I don't think there's any point in a guessing game today because I'm almost certain you won't have heard about today's subject. So I'll just go straight into it. Um, today's subject is an Argentinian photographer called Jorge Horacio Balbe Pinheiro. But I want to start the story um, some 20 years before Balbe's um, uh, birth in 1920 and some 7,500 kilometers from his hometown of Buenos Aires. It's November 1901. And in a suburb of Mexico City, a squad of policemen have gathered to undertake a raid. It isn't bootleg liquor or political radicals they've come to hunt for, but rather a party, a party of crossdressers and queers. Bursting through the door, they find allegedly 41 people dancing in couples. Half of them are dressed uh, in uh, are men dressed in males' clothing. The other half are either men or maybe trans women in, in women's clothing. And the event was a dance, subsequently known uh, as um, El Baile de las, de las 41, or the Dance of the 41, a private secret ball held for queer people. These events were not altogether uncommon in a city, although public display of homosexuality and gender non-conforming behaviour was, was taboo in Mexico at the time. Same-sex sexual behaviour wasn't illegal, but laws against public decency and obscenity were, and the social influence of both the Catholic Church and a uh, patriarchal sort of macho culture contributed to the ostracization of homosexuals. Uh, as a result, gay life operated as an underworld of private parties and discreet clubs. At the party, there'd been a raffle of Pepito, in which a 21-year-old sex worker named Antonio had been auctioned to the highest bidder, who was a 28-year-old crossdresser known to her friends at the dance as Antonia or Tonya La Mamonera, which trans as translates as something like Antonio the Sucker. That's a nickname that I think, uh, how can I put this? Um, that's a nickname that I think many uh, people that, that we know might be proud to carry <laughs> with them. Yeah, it's kind of an insult, but also a compliment, isn't it? Where's the insult? <laughs> um, I don't hear an insult. Um, that's just me bottom shaming as usual. To, to the rest of society, Tonya uh, La Monera, uh, was better known as Antonio Adalith, the son of Don Jose Adalith, the former equerry and indeed the godson to the late emperor Maximilian. The party the police had raided wasn't a regular gathering of the city's um, middle-class maricones or faggots, but a middle-class gather, uh, a sort of upper-class gathering that included many of the the sons of the uh, national elite. Uh, indeed, while it became known as the Dance of the 41, rumours spread that actually 42 people had been arrested. The 42nd was said to be Ignacio de la Torre Mier, whose father-in-law was no less than Porfirio Diaz, the Mexican president who had ruled as a de facto dictator since 1876. The upper class attempted to cover up the scandal, but the press obviously had a field day with it. Throughout the rule of uh, Diaz, known as uh, El Porfiriato, um, the, the regime had attempted to modernize Mexico through these foreign investments. And while the bourgeoisie had benefited, the, the campesinos, or the peasant farmers, had suffered dreadfully. This scandal seemed to symbolize everything that had gone wrong with the country, the moral absolution of the, um, of the uh, ruling elites while the poor suffered, and their sexual proclivities of this dissolute bourgeoisie sort of symbolized this wily corruption. In the words of the academics Lucas Espinosa and Rosalba uh, Resendiz, uh, the moral sensibilities of the campesinos began to equate high society as effeminate and corrupt, with the peasant male as a true representation of masculinity. And then this was com uh, compounded by the, the families of the richer par parties um, having bought their freedom while the 19 poorer participants were conscripted into hard labor in the war against indigenous Maya people who had been revolting against Mexican rule. The legacy of the scandal lived on in Mexico, and according to the novelist and soldier Francisco Luis Urquizo, writing in the 60s, quote, In Mexico, the number 41 has no validity and is offensive. The influence of his tradition is so strong that even officialdom ignores the number 41. No division, regiment, or battalion of the army is given a number 41. 
From 40, they progressed down into 42. No payroll has a number 41. Municipal records show no houses with a number 41. And if this can't be avoided, 40 beasts is used. No hotel or hospital has a room 41. Nobody celebrates their 41st birthday going from 40 straight to 42. No vehicle is assigned a number plate with 41, and no police officer will accept a badge of that number, end quote. And uh, yeah, my, my, my Mexican friend, uh, he's a friend of the pod, really, uh, Jorge, he told me that his, his dad said that when he was young, um, yeah, people wouldn't turn 41, they'd either be 40 or 42 for two years. And that his mum said that when she was at school, kids would count 40, 40, sapo, 42, and sapo is a way of saying, like, not me. Um, as for, for Tonya the sucker, uh, his family paid for his freedom, but they exiled him to San Francisco where he became a teacher. And there he was actually joined by the sex worker that he won, Antonio de Nero, and they became lovers. Yeah, I was going to say, um, if you're trying to get the gay out of your kid, exiling them to San Francisco is probably <laughs> not the best. Yeah, quite. I think even that's then, up there with that's up there with Francis Bacon's uh, authoritarian dad saying, "I know just the ticket to get all the gay out of my son. I'll send him to Weimar Berlin." <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, he um, he set up home in in uh, San Francisco with this um, sex worker, and they 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 had this romantic relationship, <clears throat> and they returned to Mexico twenty years later, and they actually ended up setting up a home together in their apartment in Mexico City, which became this sort of meeting point for Mexico's young uh, homophile cultural sphere, uh, lots of writers and muralists and playwrights being there. But anyway, why do I why why do I bring up um, El Baile de la Cuarenta de las Cuarenta y Uno? Um, I think it's it's not just because of <clears throat> the dance and the scandal, but also the return of um, Adelithe into Mexico City's modernist and homophile scenes really helps contextualize the relationship of homosexuality to politics and culture in Latin America at the time and these sort of concomitant uh, fears and challenges that it raised within these rapidly modernizing industrial, industrializing societies. So that will be sort of important in understanding uh, Balbe's uh, life and his own scandal, uh, one that was just as disruptive but is uh, much less known than the Dance of the 41. Um, Dance of the 41 is sort of still obviously underst understood and remembered in Mexico, and there's actually recently a film came out about it, which I saw on Netflix, which is um, worth watching. So let's get to our guy, Jorge Balbe. Um, Balbe was born on July the 14th, 1920, in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. His father was a naval captain, Horacio Balbe Paleja, uh, and uh, he'd, been, he'd had this industry, an illustrious career in the Navy, being uh, involved in the surveying of the Antarctic. And actually, there's, a, there's a, a ref, an, Antar uh, an Argentinian refuge in the Antarctic that's named after him. His, his mother, meanwhile, was Leonor Pinheiro Stegman, the descendant of a family of German immigrants who had made a fortune from wool ranches in the 19th century. Horatio had been married before with a son, also called Horatio, and he was in his mid-40s when he married Leonor, who was in her late 20s. Jorge was their first child. They'd go on to have two more, uh, also Leonor and Hector. However, this little family was heading into a crisis. Captain Balve had contracted tuberculosis, and the family moved to Alta Gracia, which is a town outside Cordoba, up in the mountains, in the hope that the fresh air would um, help dry out his lungs. But it wasn't to be, and when Jorge was five, his father died. Leonor was in her mid-thirties, with three small children to raise, so she decided to move her family to Europe. So Jorge was raised in France, and there's very little information about his childhood, uh, his biographer, Gonzalo de Maria, who's done um, a huge amount of research on this for his book, Castadilla About Scandal, which is my main source for this this podcast, this um, this episode. But what he's what he's most of what he's found came from sort of medical reports that were produced later in his life, and we can see in these uh, in these reports these predominant theories of even some of the more sympathetic sexologists at the time. So, uh, yeah, all the stuff we know about him is pretty lurid stuff like you know. Oh, he preferred to play with dolls rather than soldiers. Um, he liked to stick, th stick things up his ass from a young age. Um, like whether we regard this as vitally relevant information or something that was used to sort of make sense of him retrospectively depends. 
He was also interested in the window displays of Paris, uh, Paris's fashion houses and in designing interiors, and especially in the classics of French literature. Okay, that's gayer than sticking things up your butt. Sorry. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and actually, by the time he returned to Buenos Aires, aged 11, he actually only spoke French and he had to relearn Spanish. So towards the end of his teens, Jorge did what um, a lot of boys with a, a deep love of interior design and the French classics do. Uh, he started sneaking out at night and going cruising. In Argentina, cruising was known as yire, and its nature was defined by Argentina's history. Perhaps here it's worth taking a little, talking a little more about about that history, and because it's an interesting example, I think, of the ways that we can talk about queer history between the difference between these sort of like theoretical laws. We can say this happened and this happened, and then actually like the more material influences on formations of sexual identity and how that's understood. So without going into too much detail, you, you see Argentina emerging as a nation uh, following independence from the Spanish Empire in the first decades of the 1800s. Uh, under Spanish colonial rule, the territory had been part of the Viceroy of the Rio de la Plata, alongside Uruguay, Uruguay and Paraguay. But Spain couldn't impose strong control of the country, and following the Peninsula Wars in, in, in Europe, there was a revolution that pushed for independence. Um, the history of this independence is, is long and very complicated. The Viceroy was ousted by the people of Buenos Aires in the May Revolution of 1810. But it didn't declare independence straight away. There instead began essentially a sort of social revolution. And this process led to a series of civil wars. There was a declaration of independence in 1816 as the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata, which was a sort of predecessor state to modern-day Argentina. Uh, and Uruguay and Bolivia would later declare independence from this state, with their their provinces becoming sort of independent states, independent nations, while Argentina became a confederation of federated states, much like the US. But there was this tension and conflict between these two factions, one one of which is federalist, and one was what they called unitarian, and they wanted sort of a, uni- a un- unified nation centering on Buenos Aires. And this split between Buenos Aires and the provinces would become an important one, uh, not just for Argentinian history in general, but also in the development of uh, its understanding of homosexuality. Juan José Sebrelli, uh, an Argentinian writer who was part of the Homosexual Liberation Front and has documented Argentinian queer history, wrote that homosexuality was a way that both factions defined themselves against each other. The Federalists called the Unitarians uh, maricones, faggots, basically, um, which is like much more commonly used in in Spanish speaking countries. It's not quite the intensity, maybe, that we'd you know saw using the phrase faggots today in in English. Uh, and the the Unitarians called the Federalists sodomitas, sodomites. And so these are like quite interesting differentiations to make because a maricón is like a way of being. It has its like inferences of the same way as like calling sort of faggot might, whereas a sodomite is much more action based. You know, like a a maricón is an identity, but a sodomite is a is a uh, yeah act. And is this because they're both for both sides of this dispute, the other side is threatening the kind of uh, masculine body politic? Um, potentially, I think, I think it's more actually to do with, I mean, first of all, there's just, this based on insults. I think there is a differentiation, like, I don't want to read too much into it, but, but I think perhaps it implies different forms of masculinity with different values, maybe not necessarily a threat to the body politic in, in the same, in the same way. But, well, for example, it's, it, it suggested that one of the reasons that the Federalists were called Sodomitas, Sodomites, is actually due to the security force of, um, uh, Juan Manuel de Rosas, who was this important federalist figure, who was um, a sort of authoritarian known as the restorer of laws. Um, and yeah, he was this, the governor of Buenos Aires. He was um, maybe even sort of a dictator in, in some readings. And he had this secret police force. It was actually started by his wife while he was out of town. But the police force was known as the Mazorca, which is Spanish for like a corn cob. Uh, and like, like with the corn taken off, maybe. And that's allegedly due to the way that they tortured the Unitarian prisoners that they, they captured, these young men. Uh, a report to the British Foreign Secretary at the time stated, quote, The Mazorcas, in support of Rosa's government, derives its name from the inward stalk of the maize, when deprived of its grain, and has been used, uh, and has been used by members of the clubs as an instrument of torture, 
of which your lordship may form some idea when calling to mind the agonizing death of Edward II. Uh, you, you sort of regular listeners to the show might remember that our episode on um, Piers Gaveston, that Edward II was allegedly murdered by having a, a red-hot poker shoved up his arse. Um, so there was this this new federal and liberal constitution in um, 1853, and Buenos Aires was then reunited with the rest of the country in 1861. And in the 1880s, they began this new phase of Argentinian life, which was known as the Generation of 80. This was a quarter of a century of successive governments, which had, um, how would you describe it? Like, I guess you'd say like a socially conservative, but economically liberal outlook. Um, and, and this sort of transformed Argentina totally. The, the government orchestrated this massive wave of immigration to build the economy, uh, mostly in agriculture, not industry. And huge amounts of foreign capital investment came in as well. And this agricultural powerhouse was built on the success of this military campaign, euphemistically known as the Conquest of the Desert, which was essentially an attempted genocide against the indigenous Mapuche people in order to capture Patagonia, which was an area in the south of the country which would become a breadbasket for the nation. That land was then colonized with this huge wave of European immigration, building a, a, a huge export economy. Um, the population of Argentina increased fivefold, but the economy increased 15-fold. And by 1908, it was the seventh, seventh largest economy in the world. Its per capita income was 90% higher than Spain's and 400% higher than neighboring Brazil's. And of course, this huge wave of immigration was met by an equally large anti-migrant backlash, just as in the US at the same period with, say, like Irish and then Italian and Eastern European Jewish migration. Uh and I'm going to shock you here, Ben, and say that some of the anti-immigrant rhetoric manifested in extremely fucked up ways regarding sexuality. That has never happened before in the entire history of the world. Yeah. Never once. Uh, for one thing, like most migration booms, the, the, dem the demography of migration skewed towards younger men. Um, in 1914, four-fifths of Buenos Aires was, was men. Whoa. Yeah. Which is that's got to be one of the most um, gender skewed cities. I mean, yeah, that's got to be up there with non, you know, non gold rush. You know, yeah. I mean, it's 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 kind of worth thinking there about um, uh, Christopher Chitty's book, um, Sexual Hegemony, where he talks about Florence and in in um, early capitalism in Florence and how you know does a sort of similar like 80 percent ratio male to women, men to yeah. women in, in in Florence. Yeah. Um. And secondly, like in the US, the, the dream of immigration had been to colonize these lands with um, Anglo-Saxons. But in reality, the people who turned up were, were generally Southern Europeans or, or Eastern European Jews who'd been driven from their home countries by poverty and by persecution. So there was this racist nationalist rhetoric about the degradation of, of the racial stock or something, you know, like the bloodline of the nation. And also all these anxieties and bigotries around prostitution and moral degradation, um, especially amongst the urban poor. And although homosexuality had been decriminalized in 1886, the law was replaced with this growing establishment of sexologists and criminologists who focused not on the sex acts as crimes per se, but its manifestation within um, urban immigrant populations developing different forms of policing and quote-unquote treatment of, of uh, gender inverts. Like in the US and in Europe, it became a preoccupation of the bourgeoisie. Books addressed the subject, like uh, Eugenio Cambaceres' uh, um, book, En la Sangre, about this guy called Gennaro, who was this sort of faggy invert son of an Italian migrant who squandered his dead father's fortune in attempting to sort of raise his class position, become an elitist aesthete. And En la Sangre, of course, translates as um, in the blood. So this was like a congenital condition and an issue of racial health. And Italians and Jews especially were both associated with political rad radicalism, um, anarchism being imported from Europe, and trade unionism and syndicalism. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so these, these urban populations were seen as being at, um, sort of at odds with the sort of natural, masculine, pre-immigration Argentinian character that supposedly, quote-unquote, tamed the country and built the nation. So this, this era of liberal export 
focused economics ended with universal male suffrage, secret male suffrage, importantly, in 1916, which resulted in the uh, in the election of Ippolito Irigoshin. Uh, Irigoshin was a economic nationalist uh, advocating economic self determination in a country where most of the economy, such as oil and railways, these sort of big industries, was in the hands of these foreign companies who'd invested in the country. He also advocated social reform in favor of the workers with tenants' rights laws, um, pension reform, literary campaigns. So, so universal male suffrage in secret obviously allowed allowed this sort of more liberal, um, le- not quite leftist, sort of centrist um, candidate to, to come in. And he was president for two non-consecutive terms. But despite receiving um, a lot of support from, from most of the poor, he was plotted against by conservatives and fascists. And um, I'm going to surprise you here again, Ben. Uh, US corporations, such as Standard Oil, interfer- US corporations interfering in Latin American politics? Surely not. Never, never, never. I actually, um, every time I meet someone from a Central or South American country and they don't immediately like spit on me when they find it where I'm from, I consider that to be, frankly, too much kindness. <laughs> it was wrong of them. Um, so in 1930, this, this democratic government was overthrown by a coup d'etat by the nationalistas who wanted to return to this natural organic order of this more i guess feudal agricultural society and the nationalists and the catholic church were hugely empowered in this um, sort of reactionary conservative revolution this period became known as the uh, infamous decade from 1930 and it was marked by economic recession obviously due to the great depression um, but also political corruption and then a huge urban growth as well as former um, poor agricultural workers who had been part of this agricultural economy moved from the countryside to the cities. Poverty and unemployment raised in the elites these sort of prospects, this fear of rising prostitution and immoral behaviour amongst the unemployed poor. So a series of edicts allowed for the arrest of people for lascivious behaviour, cross-dressing, uh, men dancing together, everything, even flirtatious language. Um, as well as in 1936, the Law for Social Prophylaxis, which was passed, which uh, was a law that banned bordellos and brothels, sex work, sex work basically. And this becomes very important in the case of Jorge Balbe. So now we're back to Balbe's time. Um, his his mother is worrying about her eldest son, who's 18, sneaking out, uh, maybe cruising the gardens around the Paseo de Julio or Avenida de Mayo, and using cocaine and opium and, yeah, generally having a good time. Mm-hmm. And she watched him slip into this working class homosexual immigrant underworld and it must have sort of horrified this bourgeois woman and she had him committed to a sanatorium for treatment. Um, he was taken in to this hospital theoretically for his drug addiction but the doctor quickly sort of covers his childhood illnesses before interrogating on his sex life um, and he says that he'd made his sexual debut a year or two earlier so when he was about 16, 17. Uh, he says that he's a bottom and he habitually has sex with men. The real problem his doctor diagnoses is not the drugs, but his lack of interest in the entertainments of women, and instead his dedication to relationships with artists and homosexuals. Uh, worse than this, he didn't seem to care about it, and he showed very little enthusiasm about changing, so his treatment began, and his treatment was injections of testosterone into his testicles. Um, the doctor was working off the theories of Dr. Voronov, who I think we talked about him in a previous episode. He was the guy who sort of pioneered this idea of implanting monkey testicles into people with, uh, into gay people or people with like uh, impotence, men of impotence. Yeah, I mean, this is right when uh, sex hormones are being uh, discovered and discussed by sexologists. And so you have uh, people who are using these kinds of very primitive um hormonal and glandular procedures to try to usually uh, reverse or stop trans identification um or, or homosexuality yeah well they're often seen as the same thing yeah yeah of course um and it's what's what's funny when i was reading this is like oh that's exactly the opposite treatment that um uh, Alan Turing got when he was homosexual. They were, they 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 practiced essentially chemical castration and re- reducing his testosterone level. And in this guy's case, they were increasing his testosterone level and they're kind of making up as they go along. 
Anyway, after a month, he, he moved from the sanatorium to this open asylum where he stayed for another six months. And then he went home to Mummy Dearest, where he locked himself in his room and he tried to distract himself from his homosexuality with these virile pursuits of um, drawing and reading and listening to classical music. You know, it's funny. I spent all day today trying to distract myself from homosexuality <laughs> by reading and listening to classical music, and it just didn't work. <laughs> well, soon enough, he was out cruising again. Maybe uh, it's because I was doing research for our degenerate little show. Yeah, probably. Um, I get, yeah, he had this sort of taste for, let, let's say, rough trade, you know, uneducated, uh, rough, working-class men. It's this classic invert model for his class and his time. So you're saying he liked to spend his days inside listening to opera records and his nights searching for rough trade? <laughs> well, the opera was an attempt to distract him. Uh, uh, the, the, the Yeah. The rough trade breaking. The rough trade came after he, he broke. He funded this dissolute lifestyle um, of going out and partying and drinking and, and fucking up uh, by stealing jewellery from his grandmother uh, and his grandmother being a true ally covered for him. Uh, his grandmother seems like a very sympathetic character, the only person who sort of really took him for who he was and cared for him, and um, that's how he repaid her, which is a really shitty thing to do. Um, and his, his mother had him sent back to the sanatorium for six months where he was treated for secondary stage syphilis um, because he didn't use protection. He didn't use condoms. Uh, he claimed that, quote, I never tolerated that because I considered it an attack on my honor that they thought I was sick. No stigmatizing illness, please. This has nothing to do with his honor. Like Just rubber up. So it was in his second time in hospital that he received another quote-unquote treatment, which was he was put into an insulin coma, which was an apparently – Yeah, right? It oh. was an, att an attempt apparently to sort of treat his behavioral uh, quote-unquote personality disorders. Uh, but it was too much for him. And uh, so when he recovered, he ran away. Uh, unsurprisingly, he didn't move back in with Moby Dearest, but instead with his um, poor jewelry-free grandmother – and he really threw himself back into this social life. I mean, who can blame him after being put into an insulin coma for being gay? Um, he rented an apartment of his own, and he had this very close group of friends who were mainly all of the young gay men, plus uh, a woman called Sonia. Sonia wasn't her real name. Do we have a, a like a great name alarm? We should have some sort of bell we ring for great names because she had a really good good name, which was uh, Blanca Nieve Abarate, which translates as Snow White Abarate. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Why would, if your name was Snow White, would you change your name to Sonia? No. She, she, wasn't very, she wasn't very Snow White, to be fair. She was more of a Sonia as a personality. She, she had arrived in Buenos Aires, age 17, um, and she had become uh, like a model for uh, like cooking oil, like sunflower oil. Uh, not very glamorous. But her boyfriend at the time introduced her to this like bunch of gays, and she becomes like part of this gang, and she becomes really important later. Love to be rescued from a career modeling for cooking oil, but <laughs> yeah, oh, honey, you are way too pretty for this. Come, come, come. <laughs> it's it's also a little bit the image of it's a little bit like White Lotus somehow. These gays are trying to murder me. These gays are trying to. Take away my sunflower oil. <laughs> well, she she started having this affair with this uh, very important politician called Roberto Noble. Uh, he was a politician who started the Clarin newspaper. So this gaggle of gays loved to hang out at each other's houses, have his parties, drink, take drugs. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, there were sort of these claims, perhaps a little bit overblown, a bit tabloid later, that they're having orgies. Like, I think they're gay parties. I'm sure like there was plenty of sex happening, but I don't think it was quite just like a pure sex party. Um, they were all quite well-off bourgeois young men, architects, artists, designers, and they also had this taste for more working-class rough trade. Uh, they pick up these guys by driving around the cruising areas or these other streets in their car with Sonia hanging out the back as a sort of lure like a sort of 1940s Argentinian version of like date bus porn or something. Oh my God. So they, so they took her away from her sunflower oil and made her do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, at least the sunflower oil wasn't. <laughs> this is um, why you never, you never, ever, ever go with a pack of more than three gays to a second location. <laughs> yeah. Drag to the after party. Poor Sonia. God. 
So in June of 1942, Jorge attends a party with his friends, um, with some guys that his his other friend Ernesto Bria has picked up with Sonia. So Bria had this thing for naval cadets, while Jorge, like his his other friends um, Adolfo Jose Godwin and Romeo Spinetto, they have this thing for men in uniform. And so Jorge is really obviously drawn to this party, and especially towards this one young cadet called Pedro, and they start dating. Um. Have you ever seen like a South American naval cadet uniform, Ben? I have not. Should I look one up? Well, I, I used to live very briefly in Dublin. And I remember when I was there, there was like Fleet Week and a whole bunch of these South American naval training vessels docked in the city. And, um, I bet they did you. Yeah. All I can say is I, I, just, I just can't hold Jorge responsible for any of the acts that follow with his sort of lusty insanity. Like, they just look amazing. Um I'm taking a look at this. Oh, wow. Look at that. Yeah. So the other thing about this important about naval cadets at the time is that they're an officer class. And um, so they were drawn almost exclusively from the sons of the bourgeoisie. And this is actually like a really common cause of, of the homosexual scandals of the early 20th century. Um, I was thinking perhaps we can cover this when we do our Island of Capri miniseries, because it comes up there as well. Because it's not the homosexuality per se or the corruption per se, but when um, bourgeois homosexuals are seen as corrupting other bourgeois men, that's when the scandal really er erupts. And I think this was Jorge's fatal error, which any of us would have made, you know, age 21. It's not the homosexual who is perverse, but the bourgeoisie in which he finds himself. (laughs) Yeah, right. And he's, yeah, he's young. He's 20, 21, like this these bunch of naval cadets come to his sex party. He's, you know, who can blame him for being, you know, digmatized by this unif- these uniform. Sounds, sounds like a better time than I was having when I was 21. Yeah. So Jorge and Pedro start seeing each other. Pedro invites a few other naval cadet friends over to the parties. They enjoy the hospitality, et cetera, et cetera. So as I mentioned before, Jorge, um, since he's got out of the as- this asylum, he, he's become something of an artist and he's taken up the hobby of nude photography. And he has this whole collection of photos he's, he's taken of other young men who are almost all working class toughs, uh, some friends, lovers, uh, all sorts of men like this. Uh, the photos are artistic. They're, they're not pornography per se, uh, as much as that distinction counts. I think it's kind of, kind of an overblown distinction anyway. But putting it this way, like they don't have hard-ons. They're not fucking in the, in the pictures. But he begins to take some photos of these young cadets, like, uh, like nudes of the cadets which is his second major error. Uh-oh. I sense someone who is about to learn the hard way that photographs are reproducible. Yeah, I mean, just cover your tracks. Um, yeah, no, don't leave a paper trail. So almost as soon as Pedro and Jorge begin seeing each other, Pedro's roommate, who's called Angelito at the Naval Academy, becomes suspicious and starts spying on him. Uh, this is already sounding like a plot of a porn film already, like the jealous roommate Angelito, little twink. Um, so he follows uh, he follows Pedro, and he eventually makes this sort of connection, uh, makes a friendship, I guess, with Ernesto Bria. Um, and he tells his superior officer, and they search Pedro's stuff in his in his um, in his room in the Naval Academy, and they find all these gifts in his wardrobe. They're in boxes that are marked from Jorge with Jorge's name. And at the same time, two other cadets who had been invited to one of these parties but weren't really into the scene, didn't like what they saw, they reported them up to their commanding officer, uh, Sergeant Inchauspe. And on July the 18th, uh, Sergeant Inchauspe turns up at Jorge's birthday party. And he saw, you know, lewd dancing, men kissing, clearly flirtatious behavior, illegal at the time. And so when um, Jorge invited him out to a cabaret, he rejected, he'd seen enough. And as he was preparing to leave, one of the cadets went to the bathroom and uh, Romeo Spinetto followed him and tried to touch the cadet's dick. Uh, the cadet punched him. There was a fight between these cadets, this sergeant and, and the men, and this scandal was sort of brewing to erupt. So the sergeant reported the party. Yeah, generally don't, um, have your friends punch the naval cadets who are upper class and therefore have parents who might get angry um, who you also have naked pictures of. Well, he didn't, they, they didn't punch them. They, they don't, don't grab a guy's dick if he doesn't want you to grab his dick because then he got punched back and that was the start of it. I mean, that's generally uh, a good piece of advice regardless yeah. of their social status. Yeah. 
so he he uh, the the sergeant reported the party and then the cadets and all the cadets complaints to the Colegio Militar de la Nación, where the cadets were studying, and they wrote a report. And on the twenty first of August, the federal police raided Jorge's apartment. They seized hundreds of the photos, including those of the cadets. Back at the academy, almost thirty cadets were punished for their involvement with the parties. Um, at the same time, criminal charges were being drawn up against a group of bourgeois men on morals charges. Balbe's name quite unfairly became attached to the issue of homosexual relations between cadets and civilian men in general, probably because of this surfeit of evidence in the photographs. And so he was tarred as a ringleader of a sort of conspiracy of corruption against these younger, young, young men, and not younger men, young men, because he was actually younger than most of them. Anyway, it became known as the uh, Castle Balve in the papers, and a few weeks later, in early September, he was arrested. Pedro wrote to him and said, quote, I ask you to destroy as soon as you get your hands on it, the notebook in which all the boys who have passed through your house appear. I especially beg you, you know what or which ones, to destroy those immediately, all. Juan Pablo, who's another cadet, will explain exactly what is happening. So he's re- referring here, obviously, to the photos um, that he had. And Jorge did burn them all, which is a very sort of heartbreaking scene to imagine, this guy like knowing he's about to get in this huge amount of trouble having to burn all these uh, beautiful photographs of all these men that he had been having sex with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, at this point, the scandal became public, and um, we can discuss the response to it in the media and in the general public a bit later. But really, amongst the police um, and the authorities, it kick-started this much more widespread crackdown on homosexual subcultures and friendship groups in Buenos Aires. Evidence gathered from the cadets led to the arrest of lots of men who were then interrogated and pressured to give up more names, so it sort of spreads like a flame for the gay community, leading some of the more wealthy men to flee into exile. One defining feature of this witch hunt was the way it fit within the sexological, medical and legal understandings of homosexuality that we've been discussing um, you know, we discussed about these emerging in Europe at the turn of the century and they've been promulgated widely in Argentina since as a way of understanding the increasing visibility of queer people as the country grew. Um, and by that, I mean, basically, they hunted bottoms. They understood that the receptive partner, when they were bourgeois, to be an invert, like a gender invert, whose sexual desires were congenital, whose desires towards real men, i.e. tops, combined with their wealth, meant that they needed to corrupt these men who'd otherwise be heterosexual. Um, rich Italian men are bottoms and la sangre, as the novel would have said. So the trial really cemented that this, this medical and sexological narrative both in the arguments of the prosecution and the defence. The prosecutor, Roberto Fernandez Speroni, made clear that the crime was one of corruption, a charge which implied no guilt or shame on behalf of the poor innocent cadets who were seduced. He said, quote, Just as soon as the military indictments began, the most diverse and strange versions began to circulate in this capital about the sexual corruption of which a large group of the military college had been victim by a nucleus of perverts. Even greater was the was the indignation when it was learned that the accused corruptors had not hesitated to involve young cadets in their vice, though although that with their conduct they did not in the least stay in the noble institution to which they belonged, they nevertheless gave reason for the people, victim of appearances, to think badly of these noble sons of the country. What's ironic here is that Jorge himself wasn't yet of age when these so-called crimes were committed. The age of majority there was 22 at the time. And that the charge came after the charges came after his birthday party. That wasn't really coincidence. Um, that maybe, in fact, they, they sort of waited until he was officially an adult in order to prosecute him. And what's more, many of the cadets he supposedly corrupted were were older than him. Most of them were older than him. So corruption here wasn't a function of age, but of class and sexual role. And more evidence of this fact is um, is is the fact that Sonia, who was also on trial despite being just nineteen. Well, her rich and powerful lover, uh, Roberto Noble, who was twice her age, wasn't, even though she was, you know, under underage at the time. And this is why you never go with a group of gays to a second location, because you start <laughs> out innocently modeling sunflower oil, and then suddenly you find yourself on trial for seducing the entire Navy. <laughs> and, it, and it just happens like that. Yeah, it's a domino effect, a gay domino effect. It, it really, it's, it, it, yeah, you got to be careful. So speaking in their defense, and I'm, I'm not really sure how effective a defense it would have been, uh, Dr. Horacio Monke also took the invert line, quoting from Gide and Proust, to suggest that these men were not criminal, but were merely sick. And what's more, they could be cured. 
And he even suggested that his clients, uh, Spinetto, that his own statements couldn't be admitted as evidence because he was by nature a sexual fantasist. Um, meanwhile, in defense of some of the cadets, the inverse line was argued. Uh, these were still these masculine noble sons of the country. They were virile and sexual, and they were only capable of being corrupted because of this masculine vir- virility. In their defense, Dr. Alberto Cadarelli Bringas said, There is a fact that cannot go unnoticed in the crime, the validity of the social prophylaxis law, which in my opinion has played a fundamental role in this resonant episode, contributing to ferment the overflow of sexual appetites due to the natural cause of the need for satisfaction. Precisely when the cadets have a day off and at the height of a critical age of these demands that are natural and are ebullient. That's the social social prophylaxis law that had been passed in 1936 that outlawed Bordello. So in other words, he's saying like, these are regular macho straight guys who just need to fuck. And they could have been going to brothels on a day off, but you've banned them. Uh, So who can really blame them? Because when you're 22, you're a naval cadet, you know, any hole is a goal, as they'd say. Um, The whole legal process took incredibly five years to wrap up. And in 1947, the whole gang were convicted. Uh, Sonia received four, four years and nine months. Spinetto six years, Brio was sentenced to nine years in jail, but poor Jorge himself was sentenced to 12 years. Um, Sonia had already served her sentence on remand and so was released, but the rest of the guys were taken down. Yet the scandal had already been poured over by the newspapers and reported in great deal. Uh, La Prensa, the conservative newspaper, discussed homosexuality openly for the first time, for example. The case seemed to encapsulate everything that had gone wrong since the coup uh, during the Decada, inf- the Decada infamy the infamous decade. The centralized power of the bourgeois elite in Buenos Aires led to corruption, grift, greed, and exploitation, and the degradation of all the dignity of the masculine Argentinian institutions like the military and so on. Uh, The workers who had flooded from the cities and the countryside saw themselves in stark contrast to the city elites, but also to the immigrants. Many of them rejected the socialist and anarchist politics that they saw as being imported from Southern Europe and looked for a uniquely Argentinian political solution to both these foreign influences and to bourgeois conservatism, which was associated with liberal economics and foreign intervention in the economy. This scandal embodied it all, really. In the words of the literary critic David William Foster, thanks to the long conflict between the capital and the rest of the country, between civilization and Barbary, the culture of the former has often been associated with feminine men. Argentine machismo is typically associated with the mythical countrysides, the gaucho, the suburban compadrino, which is like a tough, and the peronist, uh, and a peronist uh, unionized worker, many of whom are urban marginals or rural immigrants. For these groups, individuals who enjoy metropolitan privilege are viewed as dandies, a euphemism for effeminate, end quote. So in 1943, before the legal case was even settled, a military coup took place which toppled the conservative government, which was led by a nationalist secret society within the army called the United Officers Group. The Second World War, in which Argentina was nearly entirely neutral for most of the war, had led to a surge in industrial exports and an industrial economic boom. Placed in charge of the Ministry of Labour following the coup was a young member of the United Officers Group, one Juan Perón. Influenced by Mussolini, Perón advocated for a form of sort of nationalist corporatism, combining a strong state and intervention in industry with social programs aimed at the working class. In 1945, he formed the Labour Party, and in 46 was elected for, for, for the first time as president. His presidency, his political ideology of Peronism, and his authoritarian, even fascist rule would, would reshape Argentina, bringing him into conflict with both the socialist left and conservatives and even of the Catholic Church at times. This sort of masculinist, populist nationalism obviously wasn't great for gays. In Buenos Aires under Peron, homosexuals, theoretically, they were denied the vote. Gay bars were suppressed, and the sort of bourgeois gay world slipped back into these underground parties. Homosexuals were explicitly banned from the armed forces, and in many ways the homosexual became like a thing rather than a behaviour in the public imagination. Family life was asserted as part of the Peronist ideology and not living a public family life not being married not you know bringing your family to work functions etc etc would really draw attention at organized workplaces and this sort of corporate life of work family and nation of this celebrated virile machismo as a national personality you know being hale hearty red-blooded um meat-eating argentina 
where the working man could be proud of his lot. It was very different to the infamous decade. And it was this world that Balve would emerge into when he finished his sentence in 1954 towards the end of Perón's second term. Yet it was this social attitude encapsulated in his trial that would lead to Perón's downfall. Because just as Balve was released, Perón was implementing reforms around sex and the family life, including pointedly reopening the bordellos that we discussed earlier. Um, he also legalized divorce. For the church, this insult was added to by Perón's quote-unquote relationship, although we'll call it what it actually was, grooming, of this 13-year-old girl to be his mistress after the death of his wife, Eva Perón, Evita. Yeah, I guess that was the one thing Juan Perón did do for the gays. He uh, closed the gay bars and pushed people, uh, pushed everything underground and oversaw huge crackdowns, but he was married to a gay icon. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's she. Uh, you mean you could be there could be a whole other episode on Evita and people's relationship. Anyone with her. whose wife, anyone whose wife was famously played by Madonna, I think <laughs> she did have close relationships with like gay men who she knew as gay, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but like she was well, also I mean, she was an actress, so I, you presume so. Yeah, but she was also yeah, obviously part of the same regime and quite a significant figurehead of the same regime. Oh, of course. Although, of course, you know, the, and then whatever, you know, there's the, the claims that she was, that she represented the sort of uh, genuinely revolutionary and left-wing side of it. Um, but it's, it's difficult to parse that. I look on that skeptically, I think. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's a good point, which is to say that like, uh, Peronism is like a, it still is a, a sort of populist movement and it has, let's say, left and right, right wings to it. It has socially, cons- it is socially conservative, but it has sort of things that do attract large, um, working class support in, in certain times right. in Argentina's history. And contemporary, contemporary, um, Peronism in Argentina is what has brought Argentina liberalized divorce and gay marriage. And, and I mean, all that's been brought in by the, by the Kirchner's. Y- yeah. Um, and, and, Who are not and, uncontroversial or uncomplicated political figures. I want to make this very clear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, but they are the they that's the same party uh, that the that Peron was leading and founded. In fact, is yeah, yeah. Um, it's a it's a almost unique political culture in some ways. But Peron, let's go back to the story. Was yeah, like having this was grooming this thirteen year old girl uh, in in public. Um, and when a newspaper asked him if it was true that the girl was 13, uh, Peron, who was then 59, said uh, that he didn't mind because he wasn't superstitious. Ugh. Yeah, revolting. Um, but he did mind. He expelled two priests that he believed had been sort of agitating against him on this issue and on divorce. And so in turn, he was excommunicated or sort of excommunicated by the Catholic Church. And um, he did, as he often did when there was these moments of crisis, he held a huge protest to rally support. But the protest was attacked by uh, Navy aircraft who bombed Plaza de Mayo uh, during the protest. Like They're bombed by their own Navy, basically, uh, killing 364 people. Uh, and this was sort of the start of a nationalist Catholic uh, nationalist Catholics in the army who launched a coup and Peron was then sent into exile for almost 20 years before he returned. Um, so what happened to the convicts of the Balbe case? Well, um, on release, Spinetto eventually moved to Brazil. It's thought Bria might well have actually died in jail. Uh, Sonia attempted to retrain as an actress and then she met this younger Spanish man. They fell in love. They moved to Patagonia and they ran a hotel on a, on a lake shore and they had a family. And she actually died in her 90s in 2013. Jorge served his full 12 years, and he was released in 1954, just before the coup. Um, we we don't really know much about him after that. We know that he joined the board of his family business in 1976, when he was in his mid-50s. And then he died at home in Calle Peña, uh, in Barrio Norte, in the center of Buenos Aires, in 1986, age 65. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for listening to the show. A special shout out to those of you who support us every month on Patreon. Uh, That really does help us um, make the show. It helps us um, take the time that we need to do it. Um, And uh, it's really something that we enormously appreciate. If uh, you are interested in 
joining our Patreon. Uh, you can find information about that at uh, badgazepod.com. Um, there is no special podcast content for Patreon listeners. Um, nothing is locked behind paywalls. Um, we have some small rewards, but really it's just about uh, you supporting something that's important or interesting to you. And um, if that's something that you're able to do, that you're interested in doing, we really, really do appreciate it. Another great way you can help support the show is to check out our book, which we published last year, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. It's out now in hardback from Verso and will be coming out soon in paperback if, um, if you prefer paperback. And it covers a whole series of evil and complicated LGBTQ people from history and the way that their relationships affected and were affected by colonialism. Yeah, it's, um, if I say so myself, a fun read. Um, and we really tried to bring the stories together um, into this coherent narrative. Um, it's been a real joy to get to tour it. And uh, if you're interested in the book, you can find out information on the book and on upcoming events that we're doing to support the book at badgazepod.com slash book. And now, on with the show. Well, thank you, Hugh, for telling that fascinating story. Um, I want to start by asking about a dynamic that may have been present here, um, that has been present in some previous kind of investigations of these kinds of gay media scandals. And think about this happening in the Eulenberg affair. Um, the scandal happens, um, is really terrible for the people involved in it. Paradoxically, because suddenly certain things are being written about in media words are being defined, people end up kind of, it, it ends up contributing to this process, this ongoing process of um, identity and minority formation that's going on in the 20th century, right? People suddenly know that there's such a thing as the homosexual and some number of people who read that scandalizing news story say, oh God, that's me. Um, and so like, or, or, oh, there are other people like me. Um, do we think this was also going on with this case? Does this case have a kind of weight in the Argentine gay self-consciousness in, in that way? Well, the, the dynamic you're describing here is entirely true. Like I, I read a really interesting thing about this guy who was serving in Vietnam and he's sort of sat in the um, canteen in his uh, unit, you know, on a base in Vietnam and reading the sort of army newspaper and splashed sort of at the bottom of the first page is this whole thing about this uprising in um, uprising in uh, Greenwich Village of these homosexuals. And he's like, he knew at that moment that when he went back, his life would change. He's sort of, yeah, this stuff becomes visible. Um, and I, yeah, I think it did happen. Like, like as I mentioned before, like newspapers um, began to use the words explicitly uh, uh, for the first time, discuss, discuss these things. And obviously, in total scandal, but that's enough for a lot of people. But I think unlike, well, no, kind of like actually the US and the UK, like the, and, 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 and other countries in Europe, you have this thing where um, toleration, let's say, for homosexual behavior comes in waves. So as this thing becomes, you know, there's a, there's a scandal about it, um, and people come to recognize themselves in it and start to come out and start to hang out with other men, become, you know, part of that gay community they become then themselves more visible to wider the wider public and then that creates a backlash in terms of people saying like well this is a, a social contagion that needs to be cracked down on so actually uh yeah you so then this starts life starts to become a lot harder and i think there is this, there's something in that as well as i was saying like that the this case sort of um, was therefore really closely linked to the end of the infamous decade and was seen as like symbolic of this corruption within within the government and that seemed to be like a have this like sexual aspect as well like a sexual dissolution or a moral dissolution embodied in the fact that men were starting to seem to be fucking each other um, and that in turn led to uh, it's too much to say that led to the coup but that was part of the culture that led to the coup I think Right, this sort of sense of um, anything goes, permissiveness, end of Rome, that kind yeah. of. But yeah. not from a liberal perspective. That's what's that's what's unusual because that's how you'd perhaps imagine it happening in you know uh, Germany in the Weimar Republic or in in the UK or um, in the US is that like oh this is seen as a result of excessive permissive liberalism. Whereas this in in Argentina, it's actually seen within this context, I guess, of like the the 
of the Buenos Aires elite and their um, their sort of conservative liberal economics of sorry their liberal economics and some of their social conservatism of this foreign intervention and that the, the city is very very different to the true nature of Argentina which is the countryside um, which is um, yeah, which so, so so it's seen as like against tradition, but it's not seen as like a liberal thing. It's seen as this thing that's brought in by this sort of conservative bourgeois elites who don't have these true masculine morals of the family that they have in the countryside, and and that is also like really complicated and tied in with ethnicity. Um, I don't think it's a stretch to say that there is a reputation amongst maybe some other countries in South America that Argentinians look down on. Other countries. I'm saying this is this is. I had a long conversation with my friend Jorge about this, who's Mexican, and he says that this is kind of the vibe that quite often some some Argentinians look down on Mexicans, for example, because they say you know you're the, you're an in, uh, a nation that's got too much indigenous blood within you, let's say you know, and that they're, they're the Argentinians are the most white. So it's sort of like this. There's a there's this aspect as well that's to deal with immigration and to do with. Um, uh, uh, the indigenous population. So yeah, there's all these aspects come into it. It's very complicated. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and the 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 ways in which, I mean, I think from a Northern European perspective, and this is not something that's going to be news certainly to anyone from the region, but from a Northern European perspective or from a North American perspective, um, there can sometimes be this tendency to flatten all of Central and South America into kind of one ethnic category and that's not at all how the people living there understand themselves and never has been and it makes really no sense right there are such divisions between indigenous people and people descended from europeans there are such distinctions between different kinds of people descended from europeans i mean it's really we're talking about settler colonies that are settler colonies in the way that the u.s is a settler colony and it, it would be absurd to just assume that the u.s contained one ethnic and racial identity right? Yeah, or one racial and ethnic sort of monostructure. I want to ask a little bit about uh, the kind of dynamic class dynamics um, and class sexuality dynamics in the uh, relationship between Balve and these cadets. Um, First, um, I want to ask a prurient question, which is, are any of these photos still available to uh, look at? And if so, where? And um, secondly, uh, I wanted to ask, there tends to be this kind of, and we've talked about this dynamic on the show and you sort of mentioned it today, um, this dynamic of the uh, invert pervert thing, right? So the pervert is the corruptible working class macho type who just needs, you know, uh, any holes a goal. And the uh, invert is this kind of delicate uh, upper class um, receptive only effeminized person who might corrupt the pervert but aren't the uh cadets actually sort of higher class than balve i mean aren't the like balve is 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 sort of fallen from the class position right and living is this kind of um living this kind of dissolute bohemian life and the cadets are as you said they're sort of children of really good families um I'll start with your second point first. I think, yeah, it's true. I, but this is kind of what I mean by the scandal. There's like, the there's an understanding of that invert, pervert, class-based sexual dynamic, which is very similar, especially to what was happening in the UK and, and, and Europe at the time. as a sexological framework for thinking about it. Um, but that was going on. There were obviously, you know, crackdowns on homosexuals, blah blah blah. But those weren't scandals in a way that this was a scandal. In some ways, that what makes this a scandal is the very fact that he is breaking out. That that the, the the scandal was based around breaking out of some of those um, those uh, you know modes of understanding homosexuality as being a class based thing, and therefore is like extra. Um, Extra, I guess, extra shocking. Uh, it, it becomes it becomes part of this contagion. That needs to read. Needs to be stopped. Which is why I think the laws were so strong against the the, the the sentencing was so harsh. You know, twelve years for 
sucking some dick and taking some photographs is really wild, even especially at that time, I think. So yeah, I think that's one of the the issues there. But I also think that a lot of the discourse that emerged afterwards in the trial was actually kind of a way for people to make sense, the bourgeoisie to try and make sense of what was happening for themselves amongst their own sons. You know, that like, w- why would our sons who are, you know, healthy, young, cadet men, virile, et cetera, et cetera, as they saw it, want to hang out with these guys? Um, and so putting them into this role oh, of this like ultra masculine role who are just, they're just, they're just too horny to, you know, keep under control. It's kind of like, you know, writing them off as just, you know, overexcitable young men, um, you know, not even going for a difficult phase, just like, yo, you know what, boys will be boys. Uh, we, and, and in, the, the, in, in a way, it sort of um, reinforces that misogynist framing anyway, because it's saying like, boys will be boys, they just need women to fuck, you know? That, that's right. that, that, you know, and that's actually part of their, it, it, you know, they're, they're not. It doesn't cast any aspersions on their masculinity as noble sons of the country, as this phrase went. Uh, in terms of um, satisfying your lascivious and prurient gaze, uh, yes, photos are available, and no, you can't see them. Which is one of the really interesting things about this case. It kind of was undiscovered until. Um, only about five years ago, and, and really we have a, um, a lot to thank Gonzalo de Maria for. Gonzalo de Maria is an uh, Argentinian playwright and author. In 2017, he produced a play which he wrote, which was, um, which was about this, this case. And he did a lot of the first sort of first-hand research to, and, uh, um, and found a lot of the, the documentary evidence. And then he wrote a book about it called Caseria. Uh, which came out, I think, a couple of years ago, which is well worth reading. Uh, it's, it's only available in Spanish, unfortunately. So I apologize for any of my terrible translations of some of, uh, some of the uh, quotes from it in this piece. But um, yeah, he he wrote this play and then he produced the book. And in, in the process of producing the book, he actually went to court to get access to the files because the photographs and a lot of the court case files was, were thought to have been destroyed. And um, it turns out the photographs do exist, and he was given um, the right to see them by a by a judge, but he wasn't allowed to take any out, take any photographs, or reproduce them. Um, and the reason the judge Ooh. gave, well, the reason the judge gave was that um, it would if it, it, it's very possible that that if not some of them are still alive, then def- then definitely um, they'll have living relatives, and it would be shameful for their living relatives to. Um, to have these things sort of yeah, reproduced, which um, which is fascinating, really. It is, and it's a conflict. I mean, the, the ethics of that are complicated, and we can talk about it. I, I don't, I don't dismiss that point, uh, despite wanting to satisfy my prurient and lustful gaze. I don't, I don't, I don't dismiss it totally, like within the context, but also the photographs were all consensual. Uh, they're all men around his age or, or older. Uh, they knew they were having photographs taken of them. Um, oh, maybe yeah. they didn't. They didn't know. Perhaps they'd, they'd be shown in public. But um, you know, uh, it, yeah, absolutely. There's no. Sh- I don't think there's any shame on them. But perhaps within that culture, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think there's any shame on them. Um, but I understand somehow. Weirdly, I understand the the reticence. So Hugh, Jorge Bave, good gay. Bad, not gay. Good, not gay. Bad, gay. Um, gay, clearly. Um, or oh, interesting to, to discuss because, like, he probably is of maybe that first generation, or second, first or second generation within Argentina who would have perhaps like self-identified as part of a homosexual social identity. So, yeah. Um, good, bad. Well, his let's say his so, like he was he went for a real tough time. Even you know. You know, is having testosterone injected into your bollocks and then put into an insulin coma is pretty unpleasant. Uh, I wouldn't advocate anyone being a sort of thieving twink stealing from their jan- grandmother's jewelry, especially if that grandmother is the only person who seems to care about them. Uh, that seems like a bad vibe. But um, you know, just like there by the grace of God, go I. You know, he's like a young, uh, hot twink going a bit wild on the party scene. Who can blame him? Certainly not me. So, Hugh, if people want to find out more about Jorge Balve, where can they turn? 
Well, there's obviously that book, Casadilla by Gonzalo de Maria, which is in Spanish. Um, there's also uh, a number of interviews with de Maria online, including um, an interview in uh, Página Doce, um, which we'll put all the links, obviously, in the show notes. Um, I also uh, read an interesting article about the uh, El Baila de los 41, which called Los Secretos. Los Secretos de la Redada de los 41, which is a conference paper by Lucas Espinosa and Rosalba Resendez uh, of the University of Texaco, Rio Grande Valley. And lastly, uh, a very interesting book, um, Out in the Periphery, Latin America's Gay Rights Revolution by Omar Guillermo Encarnacion. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, this has been Bad Gays. You can follow the show on Twitter at Bad Gays Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. And that's our show. See you next week. Bye. Bye.